This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. If the best way to defend is attack, then Trent Alexander-Arnold silenced his critics and how his delightful free kick helps Liverpool to an easy win over Rangers. Just what Jurgen Klopp needed, even if Darwin Nunes kept kicking it straight at Alan McGregor. Meanwhile, even the Spurs players look bored as they draw in Frankfurt. One very slow, deflected shot on target. Agony. There is a big win for Inter over Barca. Napoli flying, Club Brugge punching above their weight and a sporting keeper punching the ball when he really shouldn't have. After all that, we ask in capital letters just what does James Madison have to do to impress Gareth Southgate while we assess whether Warnock Bruce or Curbs would be good replacements for not yet sacked Steve Cooper at Forest. All that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Lars Sividson, welcome. Good morning, Max. Hello, Filippo Clare. Bonjour, Max. And a tweet from the Limehouse pod. I say this with love and respect, Barry. When you start a point into the microphone for Football Weekly Pod. Can you just start a bit off mic? For some reason, you're always about 78 decibels louder than when you finish your point. Love you and Max with all my heart. Um, uh, and Barry, this is it, you're in an existential tailspin crisis, aren't you, over your microphone technique? Yeah, I, I thought my microphone technique was second to none, but apparently it isn't. But producer Joel assures me that Limehouse podcasts are, are mistaken in what they say so i but yeah i'm now in an existential tailspin crisis and as i just told you i have to be finished in exactly uh sort of an hour and a half because i have a golf lesson (laughs) i'm now in my second midlife crisis in three years (laughs) the first one took me to india for a month and now i'm 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 hitting the driving range do you know i'm so i'm so excited you're having golf lessons i don't know why i find it so funny but anyway, it's the thought of you doing anything recreational outside <laughs> is absolutely so, it's extraordinary i i need something to calm me down max so golf is obviously the... absolutely right as we were touching on sort of alternative career paths just before we started recording i think a golfing with baz show is as a huge potential i think a lot of people would tune in whether that be audio or video i think people would want it i mean philippe will have when he joins the live tour i don't want to see philippe's face (laughs) (laughs) he's about the same standard as some of the people who have but anyway uh (laughs) liverpool two rangers nil Uh, first time these two teams have played in a competitive fixture which i was surprised to hear um last liverpool didn't play 4-3-3 did they is this Klopp's big change or was it actually pretty similar to normal and I'm reading too much into the team sheet that was put in front of me yesterday no no, no it was a change and it was more of a sort of clearly defined 4-2-3-1 with the sort of two players a little bit more sort of clearly marked out as as holding a bit deeper I thought but maybe also 
he wanted a way to put Diaz, uh, Diogo Jota, Salah, and Nunes in the same lineup that that made some kind of sense. I, I do wonder if that could be a solution uh, to have two of the midfielders uh, sitting a bit deeper instead of a one primary holding midfielder in the four three three. That could offer a little bit more protection to the the much maligned fullbacks. But here's the thing. Even if it does, like it wasn't really <laughs> relevant for this game. I mean, they 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 controlled possession. Uh, Rangers. I don't want to be harsh on them because we we know the discrepancies in in resources in the Champions League and all this sort of stuff. But but they weren't really able to make it as competitive as you would have hoped. And this was even though both the goals came from set pieces. I think this was very very comfortable from from Liverpool. And 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 really, <laughs> McGregor had to uh, had to pull out quite a few saves. In the Rangers' goals, I mean, quite a few of the shots were, were whacked straight at him, but I thought he, he made a lot of saves uh, all the same, and a, a pretty smooth sailing for Liverpool, really. On this newish formation, I mean, um, wasn't Liverpool's one of their main strengths precisely this trio, the fact of having Fabinho, Thiago Alcantara, and, and Jordan Henderson? I mean, isn't it, um, I don't know, a bit counterintuitive? I mean, because normally you would say that they've got one of the best midfield trios, certainly in, in England, in Europe, very well balanced when the three are fit and, and in, you know, and playing well. So is it just something that you're going to see against lesser opponents? I suppose it depends on how attack minded the sort of the eights next to the anchor are in, in mm-hmm. that sort of three. I, yeah, like I said, I, I, I would. <laughs> You want to see Klopp do something to fix the situation that's been going on, right? And I think it's an interesting thing to try to change the structure of the midfield a little bit. And maybe this is some kind of solution, but all in all, I'm not not sure whatever happened in this game was very relevant to that discussion because they were so much in control. A question from By Nevin who says, did Trent Alexander-Arnold leave too much space behind him when he scored that free kick? <laughs> Which <laughs> I really enjoyed. I mean, this sort of adds some meaningless fuel to the Trent Alexander-Arnold debate. It was just a lovely free kick, Barry. Yeah, a wonderful free kick. We know he can. he's brilliant over a dead ball and it obviously meant a hell of a lot to him and, and to the crowd who were fiercely and, and rightfully protective of, of him because he is a terrific player. He just doesn't seem to feature in Gareth Southgate's plans. That's obviously a huge topic of debate, but Gareth Southgate's opinion, whether right or wrong, is is the only one that matters. I don't think this is a game you can read too much into because despite the the gulf in class and finances between the team, which Lars has already alluded to, I, I thought Rangers might offer up a little bit more. I thought they were incredibly meek and... It was as comfortable a 2-0 win as you'll see for Liverpool and you know, McGregor helped keep the score down and Liverpool should have been more clinical up front. So I don't think you can judge any individual player too much on this game or either team. I think when we talk about debate about Trent Alexander-Arnold, I think it's a bit of a pseudo-controversy. Uh, most of it is, most of it is uh, hot air. Uh, most of it is column inch filler because it's totally possible for a player to be completely suited to one system and not to another. And there's absolutely no problem with that. And so to, to concentrate on, you know, the risk taking of, of Trent Alexander-Arnold, which is very much what he does because his manager asks him to take these risks 
And to transfer that to what he should or should not be doing with England is ridiculous. And and Gary Southgate might have a perfect point by saying, well, actually, no, that type of player is not what I need with the resource I have, the resources I have in the type of, of game that I want to play. And so there shouldn't be a debate. It's just, it's actually, there's no drama there. Is there? Well, if there is going to be a debate, I, th- I wish, I mean... I'm shouting into the void, really, but I wish we could be more nuanced, at least, and, mm. and just acknowledge that, listen, he's fantastic going forward, and he offers you unique things from right back going forward when he's on form, certainly. He's less good at the back, but especially when you have a system that compensates for it, as Liverpool has had, that's completely fine. But you can also say that he's not been at his best this season. I think that's also completely fine. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be either he's the best thing since Cafu or he's a massive fraud. Like it, there, <laughs> There's a lot of spaces in between those things where any sensible approach... I, I, I'd absolutely go mad at this. Maybe I, I've spent too much time on the internet this summer. I think this is the problem. <laughs> this is one of the things they don't tell you about absolutely smashing your leg is that you end up spending more time sort of scrolling social media than you did before. And you just despair at the, the state of of the human discourse. I would love, Lars, you to just have to rank every right back from Cafu to absolute fraud in the history of the game. Um, uh, what did you make of... Um, interesting, actually, on the free kick, uh, doing TV with Mark Bosnich, and quite often we hear non-goalkeepers either praising or criticising goalkeepers. He said, actually, that, that Alan McGregor, who did have a brilliant game, was at fault slightly because he was off his line. And so therefore he had to dive backwards. And if he'd been on his line, he may or may not have got closer to it because it was a brilliant free kick, but he would have been diving at least sideways or forwards, which I thought was an interesting uh, a, a bit of punditry that I, I had. I just watched it thinking, it doesn't matter if you know, Alan McGregor could be 20 or 40, he wouldn't have saved that. Um, what did you make of Darwin Nunes, Barry? Well, um, I think my opinion watching him was skewed by what John Bruin said on uh, Monday's pod about, you know, apparently he's he's not training well and Jurgen Klopp is beginning, and his coaching staff are beginning to think they may have made a terrible mistake. He, he should have scored uh, and he didn't. And I think the saves McGregor made from him were decent saves, but they weren't worldies or anything. He He was more or less shooting straight at him. But it was it certainly wasn't a bad performance, I thought, but he should have probably got a goal or two. I'd be more worried if he wasn't getting chances at all, to be honest. I mean, he he is a slightly chaotic player. Like, he's got a lot of physical presence. Uh, he can move. He's aggressive, all this. He's never been the most cleanest, the, the cleanest player, technically. And yeah, the finishing was iffy. But he had, what, six shots or something in this game. I mean, if you strike or get into that many shooting chances, sooner or later the goals will, will probably come. So you should just start, keep putting him up there and... I I mean, remind me how many games he's actually played. It's like people have definite opinions about him when he's. Well, I mean the the the, the games to head no, the goals to headbutt ratio is still one to one, which is uh, okay, which is <laughs> suboptimal unless you're counting the Community Shield, in which case you know, it becomes level one to oh five, I suppose. In which he uh, in which he outplayed and outscored Erling Haaland, of course. Yes, <laughs> but so, so he's still he's still and he's played enough minutes that you want this sort of the, the, this ratio to be improved on, and it hasn't yet, which allows me to bring it up yet again, and for that I am of course very grateful. 
Philippe, it's almost as if quite a lot of the discourse around football yes. isn't very good. That's correct. Yes. Sort of Thank you. I mean, I, and I'm not I, you know, far be it from me to say whether our discourse is good or not. But you know, we may we're just adding to the. I, I would say we have added torrents of vacuous <laughs> bullshit over the years. <laughs> Which, and if someone if someone knows about that, Barry, it is you. Let's be perfectly honest. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Grumpy Man says, Hi, Max and Barry. Long-time listener, first-time emailer. What was the story with the referee's annoying luminous blue socks in the Liverpool Rangers game? Once you noticed them, you couldn't stop noticing them for the whole match. Thank you, Grumpy Man. As producer Joel says, his legs look like toothpaste. I didn't see it during the game, which I'm very pleased about. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to focus on the match at all. Uh, I can't say I noticed either. We'll have to wait for the Athletics deep dive (laughs) into that one. Uh, Anyway, uh, Ajax 1, Napoli 6 also in this group. Uh, We speak to Nicky tomorrow. But Lars, this was a a demolition. Ajax have never conceded 6 in the Champions League. They'd only let in 5 twice in in Champions League European Cup in, in this competition. And it was an absolutely brilliant performance from a team that are playing so well. Yeah, it was remarkable. They kind of got caught on the break time and time again, uh, got into trouble trying to play out from the back. Uh, A lot of the sort of stuff that you, yeah, maybe think a bad Ajax team might do. I'm not saying this necessarily is, but it was a bad Ajax performance, certainly. And and Napoli are just so much fun to watch. Kvaradona Karaskelia continues to be one of the most delightful players to watch in Europe. Uh, Raspadori scoring goals. And of course, uh, Fulham, le- Fulham legend Andre Frank Zambuanguisa being very, very useful in, in, in midfield. So just a, tr- a tremendous team. And uh, Luciano Spalletti p- putting together. An, uh, I think an unexpected challenger in, in, in Italy. I just think the way things were going this summer... You can talk to Nicky more about it tomorrow, but the, no one really thought this was going to happen. There was more a sense that Napoli had been weakened and would do well to sort of hang on in the in the Champions League discussion domestically, but they're they're flying. Last I only saw the highlights, and you know, um, when it comes to Ajax, can you can you see in the way they're playing the impact of all those players living through the through you know um, in mid season? I mean, have they changed a lot from what we saw the season last season, the one before that? For the first time, because usually they're able to to plan and and to to shift quite seamlessly to a, a new identity in terms of the players who are part of the lineup. Uh, in this case, do you have a feeling that perhaps they they went a little bit too far? What you'd say about Ajax is that they've now gone four games in a row without winning. They they lost to Liverpool, fair enough, but then they lost to Alkmaar and then drew, had a draw against the go-ahead Eagles domestically, which is suboptimal. And then they've been spanked by Napoli. So, so clearly not having a great time at the moment, uh, Ajax. Let's go to Group D, um, uh, which is set up actually really excitingly for, for the next three games in this group. But it did include... Eintracht Frankfurt nil, Spurs nil. Joe says, if you had a choice of either watching that Spurs game again or going for lunch with Liz Truss, what would you have for your starter? Um, uh, Tom says, not sure about Conte at Spurs anymore. Reckon Kirbishly, Bruce and Warnock could do a better job? And Pascal Seagan, presumably not the real one, said, will Spurs ever play attractive football again? Barry, will they ever play attractive football again? I'm sure they will at some point. Uh, it's difficult to see them playing it any time soon. <laughs> but I, I didn't think this game was as boring as, as some seem to have thought. I thought Spurs played okay, but it was familiar shortcomings to the ones that 
let them down against Arsenal in that they they got the ball forward, but finishing let them down, final passes let them down. Hyung Min Son had a weird game in that he, he was struggling to just do the most basic things. I thought he'd be bang back on it after his hat-trick, but he didn't play well against Arsenal. He didn't play well against um, Eintracht Frankfurt last night. Richarlison wasn't quite on it, I thought. But there wasn't a huge amount missing in a game that they should have won, but it could have gone either way. They created quite a few opportunities, but couldn't get the ball in the net. And again, the Conte's style of play is always going to come in for criticism when they don't get the results they should. And when they are winning games, uh, people are prepared to let the lack of entertainment slide. It's interesting, players often get better when they're not playing, um, Lars, but it, it, it feel like Kulusevsky is is quite important because he's slightly different to Richarlison and Son. And, and why well, he changes that front three a bit. Yeah, he has a, he has a deftness to him, Kulusevsky. Uh, he's he's good at moving the ball forwards either by by carrying it or by finding passes, uh, and I think that is a little bit of an issue. It was more so. I mean, in in this game, it was very different to the game at the weekend. That was kind of bad in, a, in an entirely different way. Here, Tottenham had quite a bit of possession actually, uh, and they faced a Frankfurt team who were kind of happy to. They just uh, they've 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 watched the DVDs. They know what Antonio Antonio Conte is. He wants to counterattack. He wants to hit the ball into space quickly and all of this sort of stuff. And they just kind of sat back and was well, we're not going to give you those spaces. So you're going to have to try to open us up. And Tottenham are just not very good at that. And I think in that sort of game, especially you miss Kulusevski because he's someone who can who can find a bit of an opening. But but in all honesty. I was watching this and I was thinking, the thing about this is it's not actually bad enough that you can properly have a go at them either. It's like the worst kind of game because you can't go on the podcast the next morning and be really mean about them because they did create enough chances that if the forwards, you know, have got their proverbial shooting boots on and are, are, are you know, executing finishes with the kind of aplomb that you know Kane and Son are capable of, then they win this game. Uh, they're just, they're not really firing at the moment, Son in particular. And and that's why it was nil nil in the end, and yeah, it is what it is. I also just think like sometimes too much commentating on the discourse so far today already. But really, when people talk about Spurs, I feel like they're on a different level of expectation to what I am when I look at this team. Certainly, because you know Tottenham being in the Champions League is pretty good. Tottenham getting a point away from home in the Champions League is is not terrible. Tottenham were in an absolute state when Antonio Conte took over last year. He managed to drag them to fourth. That was incredibly important for the club. And and for them to, if they're back in the discussion and can finish fourth again this season, that'll have been another good season, in my opinion, really. They're, what, the fifth, sixth biggest club in the country in terms of turnover and finances? If you finish higher than fifth, you've done really well. And I, I wonder sometimes if people are expecting them to, what, challenge for titles and play super attractive football along the way? I don't, I don't really know what people want from this team. I suppose because you do see teams like Brighton playing expansive football, I think, if you're a Tottenham fan. Yeah, finishing ninth. <laughs> okay, now that is a very good point. And, and I guess, Philippe, Conte would go, look... It's not my fault if I've got if Son and Kane and Richarlison all have an off day, right? I've set them up well enough that the chances are there and it'll come right and they'll win more than they lose. They will certainly do that. And I think part of the problem is um, a, a kind of shift in playing style from Tottenham, which the supporters have a problem with, which, by the way, doesn't date just from Antonio Conte. 
Uh, it, I think many of them perceive that being a, a kind of almost like a genetic crime and going against the famous and completely nonsensical DNA of the club, uh, where Pochettino was very much uh, Mr. DNA, um, or certainly at, at, at the earlier stage of his, of his career. Then you bring in Jose and, um, and, and Nuno and then and Antonio. I mean, you cannot <laughs> think of three managers who are more against the um, historical virtues associated usually with Tottenham and to which an awful lot of Tottenham supporters are very attached to, and completely understandably so. So the minute it doesn't go as, as beautifully as you would have thought, well, there you go. Oh, he's not the right manager for, for the club. Uh, we don't play the way we should be playing. Where's the glory, glory game, etc., etc., etc. It's a little bit unfair. I, I'm, I, I remain convinced that he's going to be a success in terms of, um, in terms of results at, the, at Tottenham. There is just an ennui about it, right? And, and and you're all right. And actually, they go to Brighton on at the weekend. If they win that, they you know they're very firmly in the top four, and they easily could. I suppose. I suppose we should all just maybe you know agree with Lars. And uh, but you don't but have to. Hard, but it's, it's an a, option. It's a, but it, it's a hard watch. That's what I'm saying. It's a hard watch. <laughs> Adam says BT Comms described Makoto Hasebi as possibly the fittest 38-year-old in the world. Any advances? Um, I don't have any, but it's quite impressive to have gone through all the 38-year-olds. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> you suge- you're suggesting someone at BT has gone through all the 38-year-olds. <laughs> While you were going through all the right backs. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Something for Rory Smith's stats book, isn't it? We have all the 38-year-olds on earth, and if someone could tell us exactly where Makoto Hasebi ranks on fitness, that would be very useful, Lars. He was very good, though, and it is one of those every season, when the season comes around again, you're surprised, oh, he's still there. <laughs> he is one of those players who you were expecting to get sort of turfed out and not play at a high level in Europe anymore, like five years ago. Yeah, he's still like, he's, he's inside. He is he is in remarkable shape. It's not an entirely spurious uh, comment. What a blow for all the 39-year-olds when his birthday comes around. Uh, you know, well, I guess most people will age with him, won't they? Uh, the group is wide open uh, because Marseille beat Sporting and we'll do that at the top of part two. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Arsenal and England forward Beth Mead will be joining Faker Others for a very special Guardian live streamed event available online worldwide on Wednesday the 12th of October uh, between 8 and 9. Beth will talk through her remarkable journey from being a player in a local boys team to her path to top of international football. Attendees can also purchase a copy of her book Lioness with their tickets. You can get your tickets now at theguardian.com slash Beth Mead. Marseille 4. Sporting 1. Rebecca says, has anyone on the pod ever had a worse 22 minutes than the Sporting keeper against Marseille? At fault for two goals, then sent off for a handball outside the box. Barry, you you thoroughly enjoyed this game. Yeah, it was great fun. It was sort of one of the early kickoffs, so I probably wouldn't have watched it if it hadn't been 
the early game or one of two early games and uh, it was well worth the investment <laughs> of time. The game was played behind closed doors because uh, Marseille fans had uh, been punished for hurling smoke bombs into the Eintracht Frankfurt game at a previous in their previous uh, Champions League match. Sporting took the lead inside a minute. Uh, Francisco Trincao, formerly of Wolves, with a, a nice solo goal cutting in from the the right and curling one into the corner, which is, is something Wolves could do with at the moment. <laughs> and then it turned into the Antonio Adan show. The, the <laughs> sporting goalkeeper, first he dawdled over the clearance, was put under pressure by Alexis Sanchez and then shot the ball straight at him and it ricocheted off Sanchez into the goal. Uh, so that's 1-1. Then Adan hit a poor clearance to Matteo Guendouzi, uh, who who set up uh, the second goal? Um, Harris headed home a lovely cross, so that's two one. And then Adan, presumably with his head in the proverbial tumble dryer, <laughs> <laughs> charged out of his area to to uh, for a through ball and ended up handling it. So he earned himself a red card for that, which, to be honest, at that point was probably a, a blessing. So. Uh, Sporting brought on a new goalkeeper in Franco Israel and he tried to Superman punch a corner away <laughs> uh, missed it completely and uh, Marseille headed home their third so it was very much a, a collective shocker from the, the two goalkeepers uh, which cost Sporting in this game Marseille bottom of the group still Philippe do you think that will give them hope to, to get through? Uh, um, yes, a measure of it. I mean, you have to remember that Marseille, before they went into that game, I think had lost 13 Champions League games on the trot, which is some kind of record. It's so bizarre because usually you associate Marseille with, um, you know, the Velodrome being a, a really hard place to, to play in. And it seems that having the spectators out um, actually liberated Marseille in some ways because... What would have happened if you had had 60,000 people there and Trincao opening the scoring the first minute? Uh, that crowd is very quick to turn against its own. And in this case, it was it, that didn't happen. And of course, Antonio Adan um, helped an awful lot. I have to say, I've rarely seen handling of out of the box as, as assured as this one. He punched it. <laughs> uh, in fact, he, he punched it like Israel should have punched the ball, which was turned into the net by on, on that corner kick. And uh, yes, it will give them hope. And actually, when you look at this Marseille team, you think, ah, it's a, it's a bit strange. It's a kind of a Arsenal reject kind of a team. You know, you've got Genduzi, you've got Alexis Sanchez, you've got Nuno Tavares, uh, but it's got some talented players in, in there and they're perfectly able. I'm looking at the group and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, if we've got more chaos coming like this, they could actually do it. There's no reason why not, to be honest. They'll be dangerous. They'll be they'll be dangerous anyway, and but and and also they will have gone over this hurdle of we haven't won for so long in the Champions League. What does it feel like? Now they do. Uh, let's go to Group B. Club Brugge are top. They've won three from three. They beat Atleti two nil. Um, uh, this is a this is a sensational achievement to to be in this position and you know looking like they could get through to the knockout stages. I think for the first time ever. Yeah, uh, and. Uh, 
three out of three in in what is not an easy group for Brugge is is absolutely extraordinary. And uh, also, given that they they lost their manager twice last season, with Philippe Clement first leaving for Monaco halfway through the season, uh, and then uh, Schroeder leaving uh, after the season to go to Ajax, so they're on the third manager in less than twelve months. Uh, not because they've sacked them, because but because they all left. Uh, but uh, but uh, under Carla Hopkins, they've they've really surprised a lot of people here. They're kind of. They are a very well-run club in the sense that they 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 seem to be quite far ahead of, of a lot of clubs in Belgium in terms of the financial resources they have because they've been in the Champions League and they attract good players and all of this. But it is really difficult for teams from these smaller leagues with respect to compete in the Champions League. And, and they were really good here. And I think the first goal, the first goal was very sort of... It was a very well-worked goal by them. But it was sort of, you kind of look at Atletico and say, after you wonder something... What, what's happened here? Because the team was all kind of settled in a good defensive shape. And Brugge just kind of walked through it. And, and, and you just, they must have stopped and thought, hang on, we're better at defending than this. What, what happened here? Uh, very strange. And I think with, with Atletico and with Simeone, there are a lot of good players in this team and this squad now. And when he can't get more out of them than what they showed here, he can't be fully immune to criticism, I don't think. Uh, and, and really, this was, this was not good. By uh, by Atletico. I presumed Club Brugge would be top of the Belgian league, and I went to have a look. They're actually only third, right. uh, five points off the pace after ten games, which kind of surprised me, given how good they've been in the Champions League. Porto beat Leverkusen two 0 which was the moment I noticed that Callum Hudson Odoi played for Bayer Leverkusen. He had a goal disallowed uh, for them, and then there was this great moment where Porto thought they'd scored, and then. Then it was it was the Wilson VAR rule, wasn't it? I, I believe. Not not quite. I mean, I think the Wilson, the Wilson thing was that for a while the handball rule said that in any incidental handball, even if it's not really a punishable handball, has to be given if it's a goal or an assist that comes of it. Right. In which case, you might have a situation where a, a centre half sort of accidentally handballs it in his own area, hooves it long. Then the forward going one on one would have to miss because if he scores, That's it would one. get reviewed. Yes. And the fact that it was an assist, would, but they've changed that law now. They've closed that loophole because it doesn't apply. The, the handball, no matter what, only applies to the goal scorer, not to, to the assist anymore. Right. Uh, so, so unfortunately, the Wilson protocol uh, is is no more. But this was the thing that we've always known will happen eventually with with VAR and probably has happened and just just not uh, coming to mind at the moment which is a goal disallowed for a penalty down the other end and it feels kind of weird but but it was also it was a penalty it was a penalty um which they missed and then Porto scored two uh pretty late on to give them the victory uh, into group C and you know into Barca feels like a great game in the Champions League. I don't know how brilliant the game was, Philippe, but like a massively important win for Inter. It was not that brilliant. It was a, a bizarre game between two teams which sort of kind of threatened to be good at times, but never quite got on top, uh, where the imperfections of each team actually were more visible than what they do well. Uh, it was very odd because Barcelona, at the beginning, if you had just switched on your telly a uh, second minute or the tenth minute, you would think, oh, I, I didn't know Barca were playing at home because basically they were monopolizing the ball. They were encamped in the 40 yards of, of Inter, passing the ball around very nicely, I must be said. 
uh, Dembele looking very lively uh, uh, on the right-hand side. And you thought, hmm, uh, they're doing very well. But in fact, there's a lack of cutting edge, uh, despite the presence of, of Robert Lewandowski. And of course, you have got to mention it, because once we've mentioned it, we don't need to mention it anymore, that he still hasn't scored at San Siro. But there you go. That's We've mentioned it. We can move. And there is a lack of cutting edge. And, and Inter were, you know... Uh, who are not doing well, they're, what, uh, 19th Serie A, I believe, and uh, whereas Barcelona is flying in, in La Liga, you would have expected, you know, Barca to get on top and, and, and to make Inter pay for their passivity, but because their lack of, of sharpness uh, in the 30 yards was such that uh, you didn't think that it was against the run of play that, um, you know, Celanoglu actually scored a very, very smart goal, not one of those strikes that make you you know, jump from your seat, but a really, really smart, clever pass into the corner of the net. And then afterwards, there was some reaction, but nothing much. But we also had some interesting events uh, in terms of goals allowed and, and disallowed. Would you qualify the Pedri disallowed goal as a Wilson, Lars? Mm. Because no, it was just it was just a handball. Though. Yeah, it was just a handball, I suppose. Yes. I mean, it was one of those, right, where, where sort of Dembele crosses it and mm. Fatty's coming in. The keeper gets a touch. Fatty's sort of putting his hands up to stop the keeper, like, clashing into him. And it brushes his hands, goes to Pedro and he scores. I don't know what the law is, but I would like that goal to stand. Okay. Well, I think that falls under, like, the hand is in a deeply unnatural position. It's right up by next to his head. Like, there's no justification for making your body bigger by handing well, no, your No, there, 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 is if, there is if, a, yeah, he's protecting himself. Yeah. So that is a natural position if a massive goalkeeper is about to land on you. It's like a totally natural thing to do with your hands if something, if a boulder is going to land on you, is to I mean, put your hands in front I, of your I, face. I wasn't so much offering an opinion <laughs> as saying what I think, the, the, the how it applies to the laws yeah, of the okay, game as, as enough, they're currently written. Fair enough. Uh, but I, I also think that, well, let's not even get into the whole handball debate. It's, it's boring. We've done it before. <laughs> but it's not the only handball actually in, uh, in in that game because there was another one against Dumfries, and I thought that was actually mm, could yeah could have been yeah. given. That it was that kind of game. And to be honest, when you when it finished, you thought, well, well done, Inter. Uh, you, you're back in, you know, uh, Barcelona. You're in trouble because you're going to have to to beat this inter team in the next game otherwise you know three points after three games doesn't look too clever uh, very odd actually the the discrepancy between their form in 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 the league uh, in the league and their form in the champions league which is not the same at all but it, it was it was not a vintage um inter barca game max uh, it no, felt no, really it like two teams which had a number of deficiencies and, and it showed on the night. Bayern beat Victoria Pilsen 5-0. What do we want to say about this game, Lars? Leroy Sane is good? We want to say Victoria no. Pilsen is bad. <laughs> is that what we want to say? Yeah. I mean, there isn't a lot to say about it. They, they, they got the game into the sort of the track that they wanted pretty early on by Bayern Munich. It allowed them to to put a few goals past Pilsen in the first half so they could uh, make substitutions already at halftime and rest Alfonso Davis, rest Musiala because they've got Dortmund at the weekend so they, they could kind of put the their uh, put the handbrakes on a little bit and just sort of cruise out the rest of the game and listen, it's Victoria Pilsen versus Bayern Munich. It is what it is. It is what it is and that'll do for part two, part three. Uh, we'll look at Monday Night Football, Leicester hammering Nottingham Forest 4-0.
Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. So two stories from this Leicester Forest game. One is James Madison and why isn't he on that plane? And two is Steve Cooper and whether he'll he'll keep his job. It seems quite premature, Barry, that that they're already looking at getting rid of him. Um, well, I remember years ago when Leicester sacked Claudio Ranieri and there was a very sort of big split between people who thought they were really doing the nasty on him because he'd won the league with them the previous season and people who thought, well, his performances aren't up to scratch, he's got to go. And at the time, I was very much sympathising with, with Ranieri and I thought it was a really lousy thing for Leicester to do. But now, whether it's lousy or not, I, I fully expect Forrest to get rid of Steve Cooper and... By all accounts, they've sounded out several replacements and they're a club who generally don't sack a manager until they have his replacement lined up and, and ready to go. He's he's brought in 22 new players this summer, largely out of necessity because they lost many of the most of the squad that, that got them up. I think he's a good manager. I don't I think if he does get sacked, his reputation won't in any way tarnished and he will get another job but I can see why they would be thinking of replacing him just looking at the possible replacements I'm not sure any of them would be particularly better than Steve Cooper Sean Dyche has been mentioned uh, Rafa Benitez uh, Bruno Lage uh, they're three of the names that I've heard Um, but we, we shall see what do you think, Lars? They're in such a weird position for us because obviously this they were always going to have to sign a lot of players this summer because of the nature of the squad that got promoted. A lot of players were there on loan. Some were kind of a bit old and, you know, they, changes had to be made. They then seemed to just go completely wild in the transfer window and maybe make more changes than were strictly needed. And they brought in quite a lot of players who I think, like, kind of look good on paper, but making them all work as a unit in almost no time at all, especially because some of these transfers were made pretty late in the window, I think it's an incredibly difficult job. And and I think that was always going to take a bit of time, no matter what happened. And I, I think it is a little bit harsh. Now, I didn't think they were... The bad news for Forrest is I think this was almost the, the worst performance I've seen so far. I think that there have been games earlier where they've looked as if they were... <laughs> A little bit more coherent than this. I mean, not ex- not including the City game, obviously, but this was really poor. The distances in the team were all wrong. They made it really easy for for Leicester. There was a huge gap between the midfield and defence that Madison could could exploit time and time again. And it just seemed like they've gone in the wrong direction rather than the right one. It's almost as if actually they'd looked at the a team sheet and and saw that Madison was supposed to play on the right. Say, oh, okay, we'll we'll take care of the right hand side then. And completely forgot that he was constantly in the middle. It was very strange. But with Forrest, I mean, you have to look, I think, beyond Steve Cooper and, and the regime which is in place uh, with this interesting owner, Evangelos Marinakis. Uh, Dane Murphy, who arrived from, from Barnsley, um, the uh, American chief executive. And I think these people are just as responsible as anybody else of the problems that this team is facing. But I, d- I don't want to be too harsh on one particular player, but sometimes a player embodies what is wrong with, with that particular team. And, and when you watch Jesse Lingard's performance, it was, it was shocking. He's a much, 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 much be- be- better player than what we saw on that night. But he looked completely lost. 
and he looked as if he knew he was lost, which is horrible. And that, in a way, whatever he was going to try to do, he was going to miss. He's going to the ball was going to rebound of his shins. His shot was going to sail over the bar. Whatever, and and they all looked like that at, at one stage. They had that one big chance before Leicester took the lead. But you're right. I mean, I guess the point is, Barry, a new manager will have the same issue. It's not like suddenly he'll come in and all the players will know each other. Yeah, that's correct. But a new manager m- might be able to do some. I I think the game against Bournemouth was actually their worst performance when they were 2-0 up and, and Gary O'Neill made a tactical switch at halftime and Bournemouth came back, beat them 3-2. I think if if any decision to get rid of Cooper, and, you know, he's still there, might have been made at the end of that game um, because that wasn't good for him. That was a bad day at the office for Steve Cooper. He wasn't able to, to cope with the, the change Gary O'Neill made. James Madison had a brilliant game, Lars. Is is the debate about Madison in England the same as the Trent Alexander-Arnold one? Or is it different because, as in, Madison does not fit into the shape that Southgate wants? Or is it different because you could bring Madison on with 20 minutes left and change the shape and he would give you something that the rest of the England midfield don't have? So I think there should be some sort of mandatory thing if we're going to insist uh, this and that player needs to be on the plane. You also have to see who say who you're leaving out for that player uh, and and you have to say like where you're, he's meant to fit into the team right because in in the way Southgate plays the way he sets up the team you you have Sterling and Foden starting off of, of Kane it wasn't the last international break and you had Saka and Mount coming on uh, against uh, Germany in those roles and you also have sort of Jack Grealish lurking in the background there uh but by all means put him on the plane but you know when are you going to use him because there's quite a lot of good players in that position as well, I suppose Jared Bowen was in the squad last time. Maybe you'd have him in the squad ahead of Bowen in the sort of wide attacking role. But but he's such a different player. I, I think Madison is fantastic. He's great to watch. He's someone who who makes things happen. He's a danger off of set pieces. But he's also also a player who tries very high risk things on the field. So he does lose the ball quite a bit because what he's doing is very often trying trying the pad defense splitting ball, trying a long shot, trying something complicated. And I'm not sure Southgate loves that because he wants to play it a little bit safer in these sort of uh, tournaments. And I also think we've got, what, no friendlies left before the World Cup and just a handful of training sessions. Like, Southgate knows who his guys are. Barring injury, I'm not sure he should change that for anything right now because this is, this is what they've prepared for. I just want to flag up as well that I thought Leicester were good. Uh, because it's been a while since they played football. They've frequently not been good this season. Yeah. But I felt like a lunatic because after Tottenham beat them 6-2, I kind of came away thinking they were pretty good in get- that game. But when you say that out loud about a team that's gotten beaten 6-2, people think you're a head case. But I thought they were very decent against Tottenham for a lot of the game. And uh, before this, they'd played uh, Chelsea, Manchester United, Brighton and Tottenham on the bunch on the bounce, which is not fun if you're having a bad time. Now they've had Forest. They're playing Bournemouth, Palace, Leeds and Wolverhampton in their next couple of games so maybe they could get some wins together and uh, I don't think this team is as bad as they've looked earlier in the season Pete says I saw that Jeff Hendrick scored for Reading tonight when the fuck did that move happen <laughs> um, it seems unnecessary to swear about these sort of things Pete but yes it was a big night in the championship Reading drew with Norwich uh, which means uh, the Canaries stay second Reading a third which is really outperforming what anyone including I think 
their manager Paul Ince thought they would do. Uh, meanwhile, leaders Sheffield United lost one nil at home to QPR, who are now fourth. Middlesbrough are in the bottom three. They sat Chris Wilder uh, just after we finished recording on Monday. Uh, JNS says, what do you think of Cambridge's 0-0-10 formation this evening? Yes, Cambridge United were robbed 3-0 by Ipswich Town, who do actually look really quite good in League One. Um, but as you pointed this out, uh, uh, from the Telegraph, grassroots football referees are considering a national strike after an official suffered severe injuries, reported to be a broken nose, broken ribs, dislocated shoulder, uh, a broken collarbone and concussion during a serious assault on Sunday. Uh, the referee Dave Bradshaw uh, went to hospital after being attacked by a Platt Bridge player uh, during a game against Wigan Rose. Greater Manchester Police are investigating, appealing for witnesses from a crowd of more than 100 Football Association have also launched an urgent investigation. I mean, it's just incredibly depressing. I mean, I've seen referees get pretty bad abuse on amateur football pitches. I've never seen one get attacked. Yeah, and that sounds like quite a beating he got. And you kind of wonder, how? why did no one stop, step in and, and stop it? Like, there's this, this litany of injuries he suffered. It, he obviously got a going over that took quite some time, you'd imagine. Um, now, to be fair, Platt Bridge have said that the player who hasn't been identified has been, you know, expelled from the club, not sacked or they're an amateur club. And, and they posted a lengthy Facebook message in which they said they're ashamed of what had happened. And, and so they should be. But, um, you know, the, this isn't a, a frequent occurrence, but for it to even happen now and again is, is appalling. And, Weirdly, there doesn't seem to be unanimous approval for a grassroots referee strike among the referees. I think that a poll was done and 75% of them are in favour, 25 aren't. Now, you'd know more about me, Max, than how refs are treated at that level. I imagine they have to put up with an awful lot of abuse from idiots. I think one interesting part of this is, is do you think that the, like the discourse about referees at the top level and the abuse that referees get, not just from people ringing up radio stations and tweeting, etc., but from you know people like us focusing on mistakes or like pundits and ex-pros. Do 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 we think that discourse affects how absolutely yes, referees 100%. are treated at grassroots level? Totally. I mean, there's there's no question. I think, um, like, say, I don't want to single them out for for a program, but because we, we discuss these errors as well, but every Monday on Sky Sports, they bring a referee, usually Dermot Gallagher, into the studio and they go over the weekend's refereeing talking points and decisions and you phone-ins on radios, you've p- people like us and other podcasts just picking through the bones of these decisions. And I, I think it does give people a license to, to criticise, you know, at games, whether they're playing or spectating and... It, it it's not helpful, but I can see why, you know, they're obviously interesting talking points. I can see why people do it, but I do think referees should occasionally come in for praise when they do things well, but they, they don't generally. Two things, Max. I, I, I think on the one hand, I really do not understand that when we're so quick to take things from from the USA, from American sports, and we take the bad things. There are some very good things and one of them in soccer, in MLS, is the fact that journalists at the end of a game uh, get together and put together uh, questions, a maximum of three questions, which are to be asked to uh, the main referee. The referee then 
gives an interview, which is on, on the record and filmed interview, in which he explains his decisions. And this has contributed an awful lot to uh, pacifying the relationship between the media and the referees. And so, so um, in a way, to, to tap the poison, I was going to say, out of the discourse. Now, obviously, it will take away a major talking points for the pundits, uh, but it would be interesting perhaps for us to um, to actually know what goes on in, in the referee's mind. And I can't understand why this, which has been in place in the, the ML, in MLS for, for quite a few years and is working superbly, is not actually studied uh, in England and elsewhere. And the other thing is that um, strikes um, do work. Strikes have happened in the past. And uh, uh, there, there was one in France actually um, just last spring in May where after three referees were uh, attacked, none of them as seriously as, as was the case in England, I am happy to say, but three referees were attacked. And uh, the, uh, the local referee association of the Val de Marne, which is a, a huge region around Paris, uh, decided, no, we're striking. And there were no referees for the last two rounds of the leagues in the whole region. And that forced people to confront it. And um, I, I can't understand how people could object to to a strike. There, there has to be, you know, there has to be some kind of reaction. You can't, you can't have that. Yeah, and actually, it would make such a difference because, and 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 I, I, I've told on the podcast before. You know, I yelled at a referee a couple of years ago, and he turned around and went. I read an article you just wrote on the respect the ref campaign. You know, like like you can. That, that, the, that's the weird thing about this game. Even at the amateur level, you can get lost in it, and you do have to. You know. They are so crude. If you don't have a ref, it's an absolute nightmare. If one of the opposition does a half and you do a half, a it's a really hard job, right? That until you've done it, you don't realize how difficult it is. B these decisions are difficult. Often they don't have lines, you know, they don't have assistants or linesmen or whatever, and so they're on their own. A strike would focus the mind. It would focus the mind on everyone to go look. This is somebody who is getting paid thirty-five quid, right? Without them, the game doesn't happen. And I'm telling myself this as much as I'm preaching to anyone else and so even if they make a decision you think is rubbish you have also done five really shit things in this game right and no one is yelling at you uh or, or saying you know you're not fit to play so just button it i mean it's it's really and i i agree with you i think a strike would really focus the mind of amateur footballers everywhere actually to 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 realize that they're lucky there are there are people still doing it because i don't know why anybody would do it personally I'm going to finish the pod with an email from Julian. And uh, I, when I first read it this morning, I, it completely floored me, actually. And uh, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful email, and we appreciate you writing in with it. Uh, Max Barry Philippe et al. As a long-time listener, I've enjoyed the sometimes heartfelt, often hilarious messages that listeners send in. Unfortunately, as a family tragedy of my own has unfolded, I now have good reason to write in myself. As an American and an excited Arsenal fan, I'm sure you'll be tempted to toss this message biasly right in the bin. <laughs> but I've wanted for a little while to reach out and offer my gratitude to the pod for being a reliable source of warmth, humour and distraction, especially over the past few years. My older brother Noah died six weeks ago at the much too young age of 33, complications from colon cancer. Noah, our dad, my twin brother and I were all pod listeners. And I know Football Weekly has been something to look forward to each week as his illness slowly killed him over the past two years. Football was the easiest thing to talk about, text about and watch together as Noah was going through chemo in and out of hospital, eventually confined to a wheelchair and then bedridden for the final seven months of his life. His ordeal was agony to witness as a brother, let alone experience. And for much of this time, Noah knew full well that he didn't have long to live. 
The surreal reality he faced with unbelievable courage, positivity, and somehow gratitude. And I know that watching Arsenal, hashtag trusting the process, and listening to the pod helped him stay positive and engaged with the world. For my part, when I didn't know what to say to him, how to reach out, I could always text him about Football Weekly, something like, did you hear Philippe on the last pod? I'd follow that beautiful man anywhere. We'd all follow you anywhere, Philippe, of course. <laughs> For Noah, sports and art had always been closely connected as a child. Soccer players, mostly Thierry Henry, NBA players and basketball shoes populated his drawings. As Noah made the transition from precocious kid to art student to professional illustrator, soccer continued to be his favoured subject. His clients included US women's soccer, EA Sports, FIFA, brackets, sorry, Philippe, the LA Galaxy, Sports Illustrated, the New York Times, 442 Magazine, Howler, amongst many others. Noah found a way to connect his two great loves of art and football and to earn a living doing it. Please forgive the lengthy ramblings of an extremely proud and heartbroken younger brother. Uh, Noah, sorry. Noah Philip McMillan died in his childhood home on the 31st of July, 2022, surrounded by his family and his true love. While the Lionesses won the Euros, one of the last things he said was how excited he was to watch the game. We've created a scholarship in his honour, which will support high school student artists in a programme to improve their portfolios, a programme which was instrumental in Noah's own artistic development. If the pod or panel would be kind enough to post links to his website, I think listeners might be interested to see his work on football and beyond. There's also a link to his print store with all the proceeds supporting the scholarship. Many thanks. If somehow you've read this entire email, late edition, the irony of Arsenal waiting until Noah died to have a strong start to the season is not lost on this listener but as his friends and family gathered gathered this weekend to celebrate his life many of us woke early <laughs> I, I need to be better at reading these emails Barry don't I many of us woke early to watch Arsenal brush Tottenham aside it was hard not to feel that Noah was watching and absolutely loving it thank you so much Julian um, and Noah's website is Noah McMillan uh, that's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N dot co uh, Noah McMillan dot co um, and yeah, some of his stuff is brilliant. And um, we'll, of course, all post those links. And, you know, we, as we said, Barry, a lot of this is just vacuous shite that we're just <laughs> pouring out. And, you know, um, I, as we always say, it feels slightly self-indulgent to read these emails out, but it felt important to read that one out from Julian. Yeah, um, and our sympathies go out to him and his family, of course. I I thought you did a fine job reading them out because I wouldn't have got past the halfway mark to be honest. <laughs> so, um, yeah, uh, it's I'm I'm going to look look at that website and hopefully buy something. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. Thank you again, Julian. Appreciate it, and that'll do for today's podcast. Um, thank you so much, Lars. Thank you, Max. Thanks, Philippe. Thank you, Max. Cheers, Baz. Thank you. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Christian Bennett, and we'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.